He's from the hard-hitting world of ice hockey. She's from the red carpets of Tinseltown. Together, they are two of the leading executive producers in Hollywood. Responsible for mega hits like Hoosiers, Sudden Death, and the Oscar-winning Ray. A true sports and entertainment power couple. Meet Karen and Howard Baldwin. This is Pucks and Paparazzi with your host, Stephen Maggi. Howard Baldwin has owned teams in the National Hockey League and World Hockey Association. Karen Baldwin has been an actor and TV reporter. This is a real dynamic duo. Now, let's drop the puck and turn the lights. Here's the host of Pucks and Paparazzi, Stephen Maggi. Time for another edition of Pucks and Paparazzi with our good friends Howard and Karen Baldwin. Today we're going to talk about a documentary that's been out since September. People love it. The reviews on it are incredible. It's something you've got to see. And then they've also got a series in development right now for it. It's called Red Penguins. What an interesting name, but it's not about animals. Uh, Howard, first of all, talk a little about it. You actually were involved in buying a Russian hockey team right when the Soviet Union was falling apart. How does that happen? And I can't imagine all the various uh, warnings that were out there just getting involved in that kind of thing at that time. Well, you're right. And um, we were approached by a uh, couple of actually agents at IMG, Mike Barnett and Paul Theophanis, two wonderful people. And they knew that both Karen and I like to think a little outside the box and knew from my WHA days that I wasn't really afraid to take on the establishment. So they said, how about, would you ever be interested in getting involved with the Red Army team as, as an actual owner? We actually thought it would be a terrific opportunity because the walls were just tumbling down then. Well, absolutely. And I got to think, you know, everybody remembered the Red Army. That was the great, the miracle on ice back in uh, Lake Placid and so forth. And everybody remembers how great those teams were, even though they lost that game. But, I mean, they were, they were incredible. But this wasn't exactly bringing that team over here, right? I mean, now you all of a sudden had this, these, these players, these great players, but uh, all of a sudden it wasn't the team it was there. So, uh Again, were you kind of hesitant, and what's the best way to, to to bring them around? Well, we were motivated by two things, okay? Opportunity vis-a-vis revenues because of the fact that the country was opening up, and we thought it a great opportunity to bring American product in there, teach them or work with them on the marketing ways of our teams over here in North America. So we, we saw it as a terrific marketing opportunity, and we also saw it as a way in order to get an edge on getting players, because um, we actually hired and put a general manager over there, Mark Kelly, who did a fabulous job. He actually moved over there. He's now the head of scouting for the Chicago Blackhawks. So we had two motivations, player and, you know, and marketing and merchandising and the usual capitalistic opportunities you look for when you're running a team over here. Well, you are really thinking ahead of the game, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that in just a second. But I've got to ask Karen. So Howard comes to you with this concept. Uh, I know you guys like to think out of the box, but you had to be thinking, 
wow, there's going to be some special issues with that. Plus, were you looking forward to going over and seeing what was left of the Soviet Union and kind of getting to feel for what Russia was going to become? Yeah, I mean, I think what was so exciting about the time period was, you know, the wall was coming down. And instead of being sort of these Cold War enemies, it was the first time that we were kind of poking around at friendship um, or attempted new relations anyway. Um, And I think for me, I I thought it was a fun idea. I thought it was a fascinating idea. I only had an image of Russia the way it's portrayed to us in, in our media. So I was curious actually to see it for myself. Um, we had at various times the Russian teams had come over and I remember meeting Trechiak mm-hmm. and he had come to one of the games and I, he, you know, didn't speak any English, but I said to him, I, I really like the way that you, you know, you're, that you play hockey and you're a goaltender, blah, blah, blah. And his translator says to me, oh, I'll translate to him. He doesn't, he doesn't speak any English. And then when the translator turned around, Trechiak turned to me and said, thank you. I heard what you said. Wow. uh, Well, this could be kind of interesting because there's still sort of some intrigue, but basically people are people. And it was just an opportunity to get to know a whole new group of people. When you watched a lot of hockey at the time, and you got to realize that the the European style back then was a lot different than what was happening here in the United States. Uh, It wasn't quite as physical the way it was in America. And I guess that was some sort of an adaptation to try to bring those two styles together because ultimately, like what you were saying before, Howard, was this is going to be a place to find new talent. Uh, Exactly right. Who's kidding who? They have had and have great, great players coming out of there. And and there's not much debate that in that first 72 series, there was, it was equal, (laughs) let's face it. And and so it was an eye-opener for everybody in hockey to see how good they really were. And their training methods were different. Um, they took us up to their camp. This is now in the mid-90s, remember. And they, we drove for about two hours out into the woods, so to speak, beautiful forest. And that's where they had the Seska Red Army camp, not just for hockey, but for the other sports. And they trained 11 months a year. And then they take the month, I think it was July off, kind of the way we do over here, right? Yeah. In the summer, take July off, and then they're back to training. So now we we do a lot of that here now. We had worked with and and had people running the teams, coaching our teams. who were real icons. But Tikhanov, um, who was the coach of this particular team, the Red Army team at the time, he was a real iconic figure too. And it was very interesting to see the difference in technique and how players were handled. Interestingly enough, a lot of the few of the iconic coaches I could think of, a la Scotty Bowman, was probably not too different than Tikhanov in the way he, he <laughs> ran the room. That's right. And a fun story for you. They loved Karen uh, because we they came over and Karen created the logo. And the logo is rated, still it's sold a lot, and was rated one of the top logos of all logos. She drew the initial logo on a napkin. So when they came over, Larry Gushin and Victor Tikhanov, and they're very stern, particularly Tikhanov. Gushin's kind of a lovable rogue. Uh, Tikhanov is a hardline guy, let me tell you. And so she showed them the logo. She said, here's, here's what, what um, we think would make a great logo. 
and the two of them who we never seen necessarily even crack a smile <laughs> burst out laughing and I said, Okay, well this is either really good or really bad. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. They explained to me as I rendered the penguin, it happened to have the exact same sort of nose and profile as one of their generals in the army. And they said, We love it, it's hilarious but everybody will think it's supposed to be general so-and-so. So can you just change the nose a little bit? And so I did. <laughs> well, that's funny. You know, it, it, it's a funny thing, too, coming from the Red Army. I mean, that, you know, can it sound any more militaristic, right? right. All of a sudden now, they're the penguins, which is a very friendly animal. And, and I guess they took to it. Did, did the Russian citizens, the fans, did they take to it? They did, and that's where... Um, that's where I said, again, people are people. And we did hire um, a fellow that went over and, and, and put everything together for us named Steve Warshaw. And that's where Steve was brilliant. He figured, okay, in America, you go to a game and you get a keychain or you get a cup with the team's name on it, whatever. But maybe in Moscow right now, they need basic things. So maybe we have a game where if you come to the game, you get a tube of toothpaste. Or you come to the game, you get a bottle of shampoo or toilet soap, paper. toilet paper. And that's the kind of promotions we did. And people started showing up, not only for the game, but to get whatever was being given away at the door. Well, that's that's ingenious. You know, American marketing goes right over there because yeah, I remember in those days, people would line up to get some of those things in the various yeah. stores and so forth. It, it was fun. And and it's just one more fun story. We, we got, uh, Stevie got the Jeep company, right? Jeep yeah. Renegade. And Jeep Wrangler, Jeep Renegade, and uh, every every game that'd be the promotion of the of of counting down to the final four or five finalists that would win this Jeep. Well, they hadn't even seen a Jeep over there the way <laughs> these were built. So we were there on the, when the final the final award, and the, between the first and second period, they had had um, like six sets of keys. And they announced they had all the contestants out there and the Jeep, and they announced it, and they they got down to the final two set of keys. So between the second and third period, you know, they give the winner the key, the easy key, and you got to put it in the thing. And if it starts, it's your Jeep. You win the Jeep, right? Yeah. So this 18, 19-year-old kid gets in the Jeep, turns the key, and it starts. And you've never heard such a roar because by then we were filling the building. He didn't know what to do, so he puts the thing in gear. He'd never been in the car, and I don't think he puts the thing in gear. And of course, it takes off across the ice <laughs> and goes goes go through the dashboards. It was fun. It was fun stories like that. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of nice because. Before that, when you thought of Russian hockey, you thought of excellence, but you also thought of, like, you know, you mentioned before, the strict disciplinarian style, almost like they weren't having any fun. It went back to that Rocky Four movie where uh, Rocky was fighting the guy from the Soviet Union, and they, they did all it took to win, but there was nobody having fun. And this is kind of bringing a little bit of that American spirit in sports that we're so familiar with over to a place that hadn't seen it. And it sounds like it just was kind of a natural marriage, because I guess when you get down to it, hockey fans are hockey fans fans. Exactly. And the, the, the interesting thing, the building itself, because at the time it was obviously government built, operated, every, the government ran everything. The building looks about 100 years old. And I think in reality, it was maybe 15, 20 years old. But nobody was coming to the games anymore. And the skyboxes 
um, there were some people living in the skyboxes. Um, one of the skyboxes was a chicken coop for some guy that lived around the corner. I mean, it was crazy. Um, so that when people really started coming to the game, they realized, you know, that they had a pretty nice building. And so that started to get improve a little bit. And there was sort of a new pride that I think maybe communism didn't encourage as much as this new sort of idea of, you know, the Wild West capitalism. Two points. One is, boy, the two of you were thinking out of the box, as you said before, because you got to jump on this. Uh, a lot of great players, as everybody, every, every fan knows, in the National Hockey League came from Eastern Europe, Russia, and so forth. So how successful was that in terms of, of developing that? And then uh, I want to talk a little about a tour uh, the Penguins made over here uh, in the IHL of the United States. Yeah, I think our hockey guys, Craig Patrick and Mark Kelly and the gang felt that it, it was helpful. And they got a good sort of insight into certain players because I know they drafted um, a few of the players while we had the team. So I think that they, they found that that was quite helpful. And they, they integrated, in, just like they've done, they've integrated into the system quite well. Well, let's talk about that, that trip out to the International Hockey League, you know, North American teams. So they play, as I understand it, they played a game against all 13 of the teams. They didn't do that great. What, what was that like? How were they received? And uh, do you remember that tour very much? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it. We, I mean, we didn't go on the full tour, but it was a great success. We sold a lot of merchandise. It was good for the players. They got good exposure. Remember the IHL? which doesn't exist any longer, but the IHL was a good league. It was cut above the AHL. It was less of a development league. Um, you had, a, you know, a few guys, more than a few in the IHL that would have been like on the bottom end of an NHL roster. So you had good players, and it was a good, good, all the games were pretty competitive, and and it was nice for the fans, and it was a win-win all the way around, I think. I think the players really enjoyed it, too, because they saw various parts of the country, this country, that they might not normally have gotten to see. Uh, last question. You guys got out two years after that and so forth. You pulled out. What kind of brought that on? And uh, as you look back at it, rather fondly, I think, and, and, and by the way, the, the documentary is crazy good because you get that whole feel of what was going on there, and you guys have described it kind of nicely, but it was chaos for a while in terms of not so much the hockey team, but just everything that was going on around them. Yeah, it was. Um, we were only there two years, and... Uh it was a critical it, two years, though. It was a very volatile two years, actually, in hindsight. It was, and then and then at the end, it got a little dangerous, and we felt that this was not the right thing to do for the young people that were working for us. We were making it a success. We were very proud of what we were doing, proud of the young people there, but we weren't going to put anybody in a position where they might get in harm's way. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a strange backhanded compliment in a lot of ways and that they didn't really pay attention until we started doing well and, and until we started making money. And it and then when we did well, um, certain forces that be were like, thank you very much. We'll step right in now. So it was it was a compliment and that it meant we were making money and doing a good job. 
But unfortunately, it also brought an element to the table that wanted to participate in that, whether we wanted them to or not. I want you to talk for a second about Dangerous, because I understood that, you know, people, when they see the documentary, they'll, they'll realize, like you say, these people that came in uh, afterwards, uh, these people play for keeps. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. <laughs> and, um, gosh, um, the, the clincher for Karen and I was the end-of-the-year dinner we always did with Gushin and Tikhanov, where we'd fly them over to New York, and we'd like to give them a hell of a good meal, which we did at Morton's. But they showed up this time with two guys that were rather imposing and black suits and Rolex, whatever they call them, gold watches. And it was they were cast right out of a movie. Right. And we were informed that these are our... Slick back hair. They didn't have a gold tooth, but they might as well have. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, we were informed that these are our new bankers, and they must be taken care of. And so we finished our steaks, and we actually paid for theirs, too. And when we left the restaurant, we looked at each other, and Tom Ruda, who was our partner, a couple other partners, said, I think it's time maybe for <laughs> to get our, our guys home. <laughs> and that's what we did. And, and then things over there, not to get on a – because we love the people there. I, we, we, loved the, I, we loved this experience. We loved the idea of trying to do something good and people coming together, working together, and do something good. And there are often times where – We've talked about getting involved back over there again because we've had the opportunity. But, um, you know, we look upon the experience as a very positive one. And and unfortunately, things sort of went south again in the late 90s. And there's still sort of, as we all know, reading the newspapers, there's still a lot of tension. Yeah. We're still we're still in touch with them, in, in particular with with Gushin, um, who was the GM, and and Valeri Gushin used to like it when we'd say to him, "Okay, what can we do to help make the team better?" He had his stock answer to me, which was Mercedes for Gushin. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a good answer. <laughs> I will tell you, I'll tell you, Steve, that when we saw the documentary, we hadn't seen Gushin in about twenty years, and immediately said he is a Benjamin Button of hockey people <laughs> in Russia. He looked 10 years younger than he looked. <laughs> I don't know what happened. To him. I guess it's all that good. It's all that good living in, in Eastern Europe. Wow. Yeah. So the documentary you can see right now, Red Penguins, you can see it on Amazon yeah. Prime, iTunes, check it out. You, it's really a great watch. I tell you, I think as yeah. documentaries go, it's fantastic. And the, also this development of the... Uh, Limited series. I'm excited about that because you're working with somebody who's got a great background, Stephen Cronish. And I, yeah. you know, everybody knows his work from 24, The Commish, which was a great show yeah. back in the 1990s. Yeah. He's won a yeah. primetime Emmy. Got to be something really important for you because it's such a great story. And to try to bring it to a series, you, you really do need the right writer, right? I mean, this is a different, yeah. this is completely different than doing the documentary. Absolutely. It's, it's a whole it's a whole different format. It's a different genre of entertainment. Um, and the key thing with series and limited series is that writer showrunner. Um, they're your linchpin. They are the most important element. And when we pitched this to Stephen Cronish and he said, I love it. I got to do it. We were so excited because his credentials are 
second to none. He's super bright, but he's got a great sense of humor. And he's just worked really diligently um, on on getting a story together. And it's loosely based on because obviously um, for entertainment purposes, we, we wanted to have a little more fun with it and bring out sort of the espionage element um, so that it's a little more like sort of Homeland meets Slapshot. <laughs> you will. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. We can't wait to see it. Howard, Karen, great chatting with you. We're going to have another great show next week. We're going to talk about Mystery Alaska, which is just a lot of fun. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you again next week. We've enjoyed it. Love being with you. Take care. On the next episode of Pucks and Paparazzi, imagine being a part of a small-town hockey team that suddenly gets a chance to play against the New York Rangers. That's the story of Mystery Alaska, a Baldwin film that features Russell Crowe, Hank Azaria, Mary McCormick, and Burt Reynolds. The Baldwins will share all the details next time on Pucks and Paparazzi. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Maggi. You've been listening to Pucks and Paparazzi. Join us next time for a fun, unique look at the worlds of sports and entertainment. Thanks for listening.